Well, we've been um, looking at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ under the heading of When Mankind Meets Its Maker because I think we've noticed as we've gone across that everything that Christ has done on the cross is not done in a corner of Palestine many years ago but in fact is a, a world event that is the entire world is being compassed, encompassed by what takes place there. Uh, the whole world is... Uh, uh, responsible to come to terms with what happens there. Uh, It's the basis on which um, our world is being conducted. Um, That's uh, (coughs) the end of the study today. (coughs) I'll mention that there's a uh, a sixth study. This is the sixth week, but I was naughty and took two weeks for one of them. So there's going to be another one, and it's going to be on my blog, and I'll mention that at the end. Um, (coughs) But uh, that's going to be talking about the verses in Revelation that talk about uh, when you, if we could see right now how this world is being managed, we'd actually see, if our eyes were opened, that there's a lamb as though it had just been slain and to him was given total authority. And that's the church age. It's really quite a stunning picture. Uh, so that last study will be about the, the reigning of the lamb uh, one way or another or some kind of title like that. But today, freedom won and given people of God are born free. That's a phrase we use about people in certain countries, but not sure that's really right. The people of God are born free, and that's observable. It's not just um, just a, a nice phrase that we might say in a patriotic way. It's actually true. Uh, you see what was announced on the day of Pentecost, and we have occasion to look at that later on, but I just want to observe at the moment that those people, when they heard that and saw that they were forgiven for their sins, they were free. So free I am, so free to love, so free to tell the story, as our song we've sung this morning actually is. So uh, the people of God are born free, and it remains necessary to life and godliness And to our witness, Paul is emphatic in Galatians 5. He says, stand fast in the liberty with which you've been set free. It's not only a privilege, it's an obligation uh, to actually stand in the freedom that Christ has won for us by his death. And just a few comments. I'll just skip through some of this earlier part. Just to set the scene, it's a top-down freedom. That is, it's not something that arises from below. I mean, you could observe from an historical point of view that largely the freedoms that we have because of democracies and because of other social movements have come from below, not from above. Uh, That's just a historical fact. But here, this is a top-down freedom. It happens because of what the person in charge does. And it remains top-down freedom. It comes from understanding what our Creator is about. In other words, if you're going to live in that freedom, you have to understand what the Creator wants. I've just had a funny, I'm sorry I've got this crazy mind, but can you imagine a giraffe swinging from trees? I mean, a giraffe knows what it means to be a giraffe and is happy being a giraffe and it eats leaves from tall trees. And it doesn't swing. You know, it knows the law of being a giraffe. And the human being needs to know the law of being a human being or it's not free. It's, you know, I mean, that's just a pretty crazy and obvious point, isn't it? But it's very profound in its implications, isn't it? It's a top-down freedom. It comes from understanding our creator, what our creator is about. It's, you know, we've been made to be something. And you can no longer 
uh, be a human being trying to be something else, uh, then you can use your washing machine to clean the dishes. It tends to break them. Do you want to mean it? You can't. It's a freedom is for a purpose. Uh, it's to be what you created to be. That's what I mean there. You can only be restored by redemption. That's going to come out very clearly. A redemption is a word that means release or freedom and the payment of a price. It applied to prisoners of war or to, prison, or to slaves. And um, so it can only be restored by redemption, God paying a, um, a price to reinstate our freedom. Uh, freedom is God's gift. It's not an inalienable right. That would be good to know, wouldn't it? Um, God, freedom is God's gift, not an inalienable right. Uh, I guess amongst us humans, we could, give the, we could say, yes, of course, we, we owe it to each other to do that, but it's not somehow instinctive in the creation. It's a gift. It's the pronouncement of our God. Um, and so that's the way we need to see it. It's an inward to outward freedom. Uh, most of the freedom movements, by nature of the case, are dealing with outward facts. I don't know how you can do it any other way. As I've said, they've generally arisen from below and demanded something of the authorities and so forth. And, and I'm all in favour of that. There's nothing problem with that. Just saying it's not the Christian freedom we're talking about, that's all. Uh, so this freedom that God gives is inward to outward. And if, in fact, you're going to have a free society, it has to be sustained by free people. It's interesting, isn't it? It took Vaclav Havel, who'd been in a prisoner of war camp uh, or a um, gulag or whatever under the, under the communists, to say you need to be under a rock in order to know what freedom is or before you think, that's what he said. And he was uh, given an opportunity to go to America, speak to the joint houses of their, uh, their parties, and, um, uh, and he said, you also are being affected like Czechoslovakia. Uh, and then the Czech Republic and Slovak, Slovakia, um, when they divided, uh, he said, you've been affected in the same way as we have. It's just that things are pleasant for you. You don't realise it. In other words, you have to be under a rock before you think. Uh, we are losing our Western freedoms because, do, do you follow what I'm saying here? It's an inward to outward freedom. You have to have free people to create a free society. You think of a mum and a dad, just on a very simple scale, I'm more familiar with that than I am with politics, but if you just got a mum and a dad, and both of them are free, are free of the need to, to be something great in the world, and free to love each other, think what an environment they create for their kids to go out into the world, and to be what they are, instead of being something that mum and dad need for their ambition. I mean, it's a very simple example, but can you see what I mean? That freedom has to be inward for it to be outward, and the world, by nature of the case, as with Israel, looking for a Messiah. What did they want? Someone to put the Romans in place. What did Jesus bring? Do you see, it's an inward. And then it can become something outward, but it needs to begin as something inward. This contrasts with the narrative that says our life is the result of structures, which is the general uh, feeling these days which must be overcome by personal choices. You need to decide what you're going to be yourself. That's the narrative that we've got going around us at the moment. And we need to fight that. In a sense, when otherwise it takes over our consciousness. We need to assert these things. Attempts at freedom take many forms, such as doing it my way, 
Apparently the most popular song at funerals is I did it my way. It's just a fact around Western funerals. Somebody's observed that. Um, Removing oppression, avoiding responsibility, living the dream and many others. But these do not speak to our actual situation. Our Bible is a narrative of God bringing us to freedom. You could call it a freedom book, if you like. Um, the Lord, for example, comes... Uh, I'm not, uh, don't think we need to go back prior to the Exodus. I think you could, but nonetheless, you go to the Exodus and the Lord is setting Israel free, or he redeems them, is the word that's used. We'll look at that in a moment, from Egypt. And this is so that they are free to serve the Lord. Uh, that's the word that Moses is said to go to... Um, Go to um, Pharaoh, set my people free that they may serve me in the wilderness. You see that? Uh, freedom is so primarily so we can be free for God. If you want to be yourself, be something for God. While you're being something for other people, you'll never be yourself. Do, do you follow? It's... Freedom is to something you are before God because we're his creatures. And so God said that right from the outset. They served the Lord uh, so they could serve the Lord. That's the reason they needed to be set free. Um, I'll leave the next sentence out. Um, not that it's untrue, but just go on. Sin is using freedom for ourselves as Israel discovered. So God gave them freedom. How did they use it? Well, after David and Solomon... Many of the kings, both in Judah and certainly up in Israel, all did what was wrong in the sight of the Lord and lost their freedom. And that was quite a painful process. Uh, in fact, it wasn't that long after those two great men, uh, that is David and Solomon, um, and the splitting of the kingdom, uh, that in fact uh, these people of God, while they still lived um, somewhat you know, as their own states, they were vassal states. They had to strip the gold off the temple to give it to such and such to keep off their back and so forth. They weren't really free in the way that they had been under David. Um, so there was good kings and bad kings, of course. But Israel, simply the story of Israel, is a story of them learning to live in freedom or not learning to live in freedom um, uh, so outside of obedience to God, we lose our, like Israel, we lose our freedom. Freedom must be restored then by redemption or by cleansing from sin. Very interesting, just, just one, I could quote numbers of them, but uh, here's one that um, stands out, Zechariah 3.9, and we'll have occasion to come back to this in a moment, but 3.9 in Zechariah says, I... Uh, a stone that I have set before Joshua on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription. And this is what it will say. I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. You can see there, the, coming through the prophet, the purpose of God to deal with what gets in the road of freedom. I will remove the sin of Israel uh, in a single day. Now, what does the prophet mean by that? What does God mean by that? It might mean that God's going to get rid of all the stuff and nonsense that Israel's about, practically, behaviorally. 
But if you go over to chapter 13, uh, where the prophet goes on in chapter 1, he says, On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Interesting, isn't it? What does the prophet understand? We don't know. Prophets weren't told everything. They were told enough to keep the hope alive. But we know what it means. That if God, in a practical way, is going to remove the sin, which is the obstruction to freedom, he's going to remove the sin, he's going to have to wash them. Very interesting, isn't it? All those things are in the Old Testament before we even come to the New Testament. So can you appreciate when Jesus comes, and of course even within Israel there was all sorts of penalties, uh, not penalties, but results when people uh, got off the rails or ran out of money or whatever and they would become slaves. And then there was a year of jubilee, and not just the seventh year when the slaves were to be set free, but the 50th year when all the land was to be restored to people who'd had to sell it for one reason or another, so that no, no hierarchies of, in, of you know, no, nobility could arise that could accumulate property over generations. 50 years all went back to its proper owner. Quite interesting, isn't it? It was called the year of Jubilee. It was a day of great freedom. So what does it mean when Jesus comes and he's given an opportunity to preach in his home synagogue and he stands up and he finds the place in Isaiah 61 where it says this and he quotes it, chapter 4, verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. I can almost feel the, <laughs> the surge of emotion if I'm allowed to talk about that within, in regard to our Lord. I don't really know, but I, I could sort of feel something of it. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me, like David, to be a king. He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. So the Lord had this as his goal. Now, of course, well he may. uh, These things have been spoken about him at his birth. Uh, Matthew, uh, sorry, um, Matthew records the story of Joseph getting a message from an angel you call his name Jesus, for he will save his people. Uh, Jesus is like Joshua, Yahweh saves, and, and so the word Jesus has the idea of salvation in it. He will save his people from their sins. What? Is that not music to your ears? When we just see the straits we get into ourselves, and the straits that people get into when their lives go astray. Oh, for someone to save people from their sins and so that they can serve God in holiness. That's what Zechariah announces, so that we may serve him, God, in holiness. Notice the from and to again. Freedom is not just freedom from, it's freedom for. We need to be released so that we can be about what we're really meant to be about in life. So, so that we may serve the Lord in holiness. All these things have been said about Jesus at his birth and then when he comes to his baptism, John the Baptist points him out to uh, some of his disciples said, see there, Lamb of God, going to take away the sins of the world. Now you ask, you tell me, what does that mean? Just like that, take away the sins of the world. What's going to happen? 
Well, we don't know what John the Baptist had in mind. He might have had some of the things like in Malachi when the Lord would come with judgment. And he'd tidy Israel up. He had some fairy fiery things to say, didn't he, John the Baptist, about what was going to happen in Israel. The Lord's going to come and he's going to clean his granary. He's going to blow away all the chaff. So what does John mean when he says the Lord's going to come and he's going to, going to um, take away the sin of the world? It's quite a momentous thing, isn't it? Now, the interesting thing is ideologies are trying to do that. And uh, those ideologies become um, military policies. Um, And they become repression of people, all in the name of we have to do this in order to set people free. We have to, that's that's what goes on. Ideologies try to do this, but miss what is really in need, and that is the defeat of false lords. Other lords that are not true lords, as our song said, have come and taken us over. You don't set people free by changing their circumstances. Freedom is inward and freedom is from above. That's what we know. So, and the Lord explains this when he comes to John chapter 8. And John 8 is a lovely story. I almost thought perhaps I'd better throw my notes away and just do an exposition of John 8. But anyway, <laughs> Israel is looking for freedom and they think that a Messiah is going to work magic. And, um, I mean, it doesn't take a lot of thinking about why people wanted him to be um, their king when he turns a few loaves and fishes into enough to feed 5,000. That's what we're expecting our governments to do all the time, isn't it? Give them meager taxes and expect to be looked after for everything, right from birth to old age. <laughs> we're expecting our governments to turn a few loaves and fishes into enough to feed everybody all the time. Uh, so, of course, they were, they were fair to vote for him. to <laughs> be our king. Uh, he could fix the economy in no time at all with a, uh, you know, a workout put to uh, return a ratio like he did. Five loaves and a few fish and 5,000 happy men plus a few women and children. <laughs> That's incredible. Uh, but I mean, I'm being lighthearted, but uh, can you see that Israel had no idea at all as to what their true enemy was? And so Jesus has to open it up and people start to believe in him. Jesus isn't a very attractive person. He's got some great ideas. So people, many people believed in him. So Jesus said to those who believed in him, if you abide in my word, truly you're my disciples and you'll know the truth. And the truth, truth, inward to outward, truth will set you free. And he answered, we're offspring of Abram. We don't, we've never been in bondage to anyone. Do you see that they had something quite differently? The truth is Christ's word. He goes on and said, the son is free because he knows who his father is. That's the line of argument. You are in bondage because you're in bondage to your sins and I am free because I do the will of my father. Do you see what causes a loss? And do you cause, see how freedom operates? The from and the to. Christ knows that his life's all about the Father. He said, I know the Father, so I'm free. Wonderful, isn't it? Uh, it's a wonderful picture of what real freedom is. So we'll just leave that and, um, and you can have a good read of chapter, verse, chapter John 8, 31, 36. Just a wonderful story of an expose 
of people who thought they were free, but they were just looking to, well, you know, you and I could say, well, we're free because I've been born in Australia. Wrong. I'm free because we're in a democracy. Wrong. That's saying, we belong to Abraham. Wrong. Did you follow? Culturally, we belong to Abraham. We've got our background. You know, it's been good. And I agree, I'm great. I think it's great being in Australia. I think it's great being a democracy. All for it. But you see, if we think that's the source of it, then we've got it all wrong. And um, <clears throat> so the Lord had to uh, sort that out for, for his people and show them that it comes from being set free and it comes from doing the will of the Father. Whoever commits sin is the slave of sin. Have you ever noticed? We don't need to read books to find that out, do we? We don't need to be psychologists to know that. We just need to be honest. You commit a sin, it's got you, hasn't it? You've got to find somewhere to deal with that. And the world's running around. I think sometimes the busyness uh, is uh, one of the ways we deal with that. Um, escapism is one of the ways we try to deal with this. All sorts of ways we have of trying to deal with the pain within. You commit something wrong, you, it's yours. And uh, then you have to spend the rest of your life sort of explaining it or living it off or something or other unless somebody comes and saves you. A new exodus, Jesus says, is needed. I think it's marvellous. Here comes Moses and Elijah and they meet Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. What a, what a meeting. Wouldn't you like to be the minute secretary <laughs> while they discuss their business? Uh, Moses and Elijah, the person who, for whom the law was given and the person who was, if you like, a, a, a prototype of the, of the prophetic movement, uh, Elijah, uh, insisting on the keeping of the law. Where does he run when everything goes wrong? He runs to Mount Sinai. That, that's his starting point. It's his ethos. It's where he's living. So here is Moses and Elijah and they have a conversation with Jesus about an exodus. The word is always translated departure, or mostly translated departure, but it's literally, in Greek, exodos. It's, that's what it is. It's the exodus. It's a new exodus that Jesus is going to accomplish, not suffer, accomplish at Jerusalem. What a, what a conversation that must have been. And uh, poor old Peter puts his foot in it and says, let's have some tents here. <laughs> Do you see how, how little we really get the real issue? <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? So, Jesus then accomplishes freedom for us. When the hour of Jesus' death arrives in Luke 22, uh, quite salutary, he knows what it's all about, what he's got to do, if this exodus is going to happen. When I was with you, day after day in the temple, he announces, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Freedom and the winning of freedom is no small battle. Just think of all that had to happen to let God's people get out of Egypt. Egypt had to be ruined economically and family-wise, every family losing a firstborn. You've got tragedy upon tragedy uh, in the country. Uh, all that before uh, and even then only with uh, 
you know, temporarily, does, uh, does um, uh, Pharaoh give way? And anyway, God's people come out. So Jesus has got a battle on his hands, hasn't he? Now is your hour in the power of darkness. He personally engages all that binds us, our sin. Whoever commits sin is in bondage to his sin. What does it mean for Jesus to be made sin? With its futility, just think how ridiculous the trial is that Jesus has been through. Just a mock trial. It's pollution and it's shame. The law's accusation then and the judgment on it and all the world against him and then death itself. Now, that's interesting. In another place in John 14, very interesting just to put these things together sometimes, isn't it? Because they're in different Gospels. But John 14 and verse 30, uh, we find this. Um, I will no longer talk much with you, he says to his disciples, for the ruler of this world is coming and he has no claim on me. So I've said that when Jesus dies, and I think this is right, sin in its futility, pollution, shame, laws, accusation, judgment, the world and death, Satan also comes, but he doesn't have anything on Jesus. What does that mean? I think it means Christ is a free man. He dies willingly. He dies because he loves us, not because he has to. This is opened up for us by the word of the apostles and by the coming of the Spirit. So that's what we spend the rest of our time on now, uh, having opened that up. Through Christ's blood, we receive redemption. What a wonderful verse. In whom, he says, we've been chosen by God. Uh, What for? Ephesians 1, he says, uh, in him, Christ, we have redemption. That's the buying of freedom. That's its meaning. And the price, it's apolotrosis, and the lutron is the actual ransom, ransom redemption. They're linked, of course. Um, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness. So how does forgiveness come to us? As It comes as an act of setting free. Forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. That's what Paul's talking about. The apostles announce the forgiveness to Christ's murderers. You murdered him. What will we do? Repent. I love that. Repent. We, we think this, you know, be miserable about your sins. No, you think about the word repent. It literally means change your mind. I can't think of a better, a better option. You've got an exam. There's two possible answers and you get two goes at the exam. This is the Messiah. No, he's not. Wrong answer. Choose again. Oh, he's the Messiah. I mean, go figure. How generous is God when Peter Peter announces, well, repent. Just killed your Messiah, but repent. Decide that he is the Messiah. And sins will be forgiven. 
just astonishing. And uh, Peter's come a long way, hasn't he? He's passing his exams now, hasn't he? The relief is palpable. Um, Chris said, does everybody know what palpable means? Well, it means something you feel, something that's obvious. You can see it, it's working. Uh, Freedom before God pours out in a community that loves one another and even sells property so that nobody gets missed out because they get thrown out of the synagogue, of course, which was their social welfare. So they actually had a practical need. Some people were without a pension. So they got a fund together pretty quick. Well, that takes a lot of work and takes a lot of generosity. And they did it without the government. It's great, isn't it? Guilt binds us up in self-justification, in self-promotion, in self-excusing and busyness. And here we are released from our sins through Christ's blood. I've just got to read some of these verses because they are gold. Uh, We are um, grace and peace to you from God who is and is to come and the seven spirits who are before his throne and grace and peace from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. He says, if you hear my word, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. He is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of earth. To him, now you've just got to stop in your theology for a minute and just do a bit of doxology, don't you? To him who loves us, That's present tense. What's going on right now? Christ loves you. This is not not a, a, a deal. This is love for you. To him who loves us. And past tense has freed us from our sins. The love that freed you is the love you're living in. Do you see the difference in tense there? It's him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. And notice this made us a kingdom straight into authority, isn't it? We're in a kingdom where things are ordered and so forth. Into a kingdom, priest to his God and Father and so forth. We're saved for something. We are released from a life of self-accomplishment or law-based obedience, Peter got it right, or no, Paul it is in Acts 13. He says, uh, as he's talking to the Jews, he says, we've been set free from all that the law couldn't set us free from. Yeah, of course you're Abram's children, but what did it do for us? Turn it into a mob of prigs who thought that Abram's my dad, we're okay. And then they go and kill the Messiah. That's how right they were. He says, we've been freed from all that didn't do us any good. That is just imagining that the law is going to be all we need. I'm not saying that the law is saying bad things. He's just saying that the law didn't set us free. And thinking you can keep the law doesn't set you free. And Romans 8, again, one of those passages you just have to read because it says it so abundantly clearly. Romans chapter 8, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free. You can see there's a whole new regime, a law. There's a whole new regime 
It's an authority. Uh, the law of life in Christ Jesus sets you free from the law of sin. That is from the life of accomplishment. Law of sin and what did that lead to? Death. For God has done what the Lord has weakened by the flesh could not do, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. There's a mystery there. Likeness of sinful flesh. How much is Jesus Christ implicated in what we are? Well, he's without sin. That's as clear as a bell because it's stated in fact. He's without sin. Uh, But on the other hand, he's come so close as to feel the pain of you and I being sinners. And the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. That is all the condemnation that has to happen for you, you and I are, has happened and finished. So that's the end of that. And you can go and have a look at Galatians as well. It's worth asking, at any time, is my life starting with guilt or is my life starting with forgiveness? Every minute of your life is either one or the other. Your conscience will see to that. It's worth asking. We can slip into self-accomplishment as quick as I preach a decent sermon. Go home and say, look what a good boy am I. My little plum on my finger. It's crazy, isn't it? Just get it out in the open and say it. We're crazy and we don't need it. We don't need self-justification. We just need to be forgiven. Secondly, we have cleansing. There's three headings here. You see one's forgiveness, one's cleansing, and the next one's we have a change of master. I'll have to go a bit quicker. Through Christ's blood, we have cleansing. Peter must find a new way of seeing himself. He's clean. You know, what's Peter doing when Jesus is washing feet? Oh, I should be washing feet. Oh, well, you shouldn't wash my feet. What's he doing? Justifying himself. I mean, don't you recognise it? Haven't you been there? Can't you see it? He's trying to justify himself by saying the right thing, doing the right thing. Jesus got to it first, now he feels embarrassed. Uh, so that's the, that's the circumstance. And, and Jesus says, no, you don't need to be washed all over when he sort of goes in his usual way of going all for nothing, all or nothing. And he says, no, you don't need washing all over, you're clean because of what I've spoken to you. Peter is having to learn to be clean in a different way from what he used to be clean. You see, it's a learning process. It's not easy to realise that somebody else makes you clean, not you. Peter must find a new way of seeing others. He gets to Cornelius' household and see the struggle he has to realise that non-circumcised people are fair company for him. And he even announces it. I mean, I would have thought he'd just have it as his private little affair with the Lord, but he announces it in front of everybody. The Lord has taught me that I am not to call unclean what God has cleaned. He's having to learn to see other people in different ways. A whole new learning process going on here, isn't there? Circumcision, and because he says, mentioned circumcision, Peter says, uh, you know, you are not circumcised, but it doesn't matter. Circumcision, in fact, signifies cleansing from defilement. And Israel was asked to do that. Cleanse the foreskin of your hearts. I haven't got the reference there, but it's Deuteronomy 10.6. Cleanse the foreskin of your heart. In other words, when your person was, was, was just a, a ritual, you know, that they went through and says you're a Jew. 
but it meant something. It meant that you cement to cut off what's, what's false. You're supposed to get rid of it. It's just plain and simple. And so the Lord says, circumcise the foreskin of your heart. And then at the end of that same book of Deuteronomy, chapter 30, verse 6, he says, you're not going to do all of this. He says, so I am going to circumcise the foreskin of your heart. That which you and I, we should tidy our lives up. No question about it. Every one of us here should tidy our lives up. And the Lord says, I'm going to do that for you. I'm going to make you clean. That's incredible. And what else does that mean? I've asked a person who studied Deuteronomy, is there any place in the Bible where there's a fulfilment of that prophecy in Deuteronomy 30 uh, before Colossians? He said, no, I don't know of anyone. So here it is, Colossians 2.11. This is the way the Jew of the Jews sees it. Paul, the old Saul of Tarsus. In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ. What an amazing statement. What we should do, God does. What is unclean in us is attributed to Christ and in his flesh it's cut off. God's basically saying, I hate what you've made of yourself. And all that's wrong, my son is going to bear. That's where we're going to do the cutting off and getting rid of it. We are clean then and able to enjoy God. You ask, how does that happen? I'm not going to even try. We must cease trusting ourselves and cast ourselves on God's mercy. We must learn to see ourselves as God has decided to see us, in his Son and no longer unclean. And what a wonderful picture. A bride all dressed up in our finery. And God says, here's my people. I've made her pure myself. Is that you? Bride of Christ, all scrubbed up, fit for a wedding. Paul, like Peter, must find a new way of seeing himself. He's told, this is his, I think, third time or second time he tells his testimony in Acts 22. And he says, uh, he records the fact of how uh, he is told, Come, Paul, wash away your sins. Be baptised and wash away your sins. Where does that get a place in Paul's head? After all, his self-justification. Do you see a totally new way? of seeing himself. Where's your good reputation come from? Where does your understanding of your own dignity come from? Does it come from scrabbling around in the mess of what we make of our life? Or does it come from the word of Christ? You are clean through the word that I have spoken to you. So Paul, like Peter, must find a new way of seeing himself. He calls it regeneration. We're washed. And again, I just want to read the verses to you because they're so great. Titus 3.5. He says, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration. This washing, some washing, you come out remade, not just without the dirt. 
the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So, I, mean, I won't go into this, but Hebrews 9, we can live with a clear conscience. Our conscience purged from dead works. What were dead works? Self-justifying works. Saved from dead works to serve. Notice the positivity again then, to serve the living God. This is a settled state, and again, a whole story in 1 John, a settled state. Uh, you say you've got no sins, you've got to be kidding. You're ridiculous. Uh, if we say we're sins, we're basically making God a liar. That's how serious it is. Uh, sure, we've got sins. Just, just be open about it. How stupid we really are. And we go on being stupid. We mostly can hide it from one another, but we know the truth. Um, and uh, he says, but the blood of Christ goes on cleansing us from all sin. Goes on. It's a settled state. And the criteria is that you don't trust yourself and you do trust Jesus Christ for your status before God. Cleanness isn't just so you can say, look what a good boy am I. Cleanness is so you can come into God's presence. If you look at what the meaning of cleaning in the Old Testament, why do they cleanse their hands? Why do they go through all these rituals so they can go into the temple? Why do we need to be cleansed? So we can come up to God and say, hello. And God said, glad to see you. That's cleanness. So that we may serve him. We may be before him. And because sin has been condemned in the flesh of Christ, we are freed to walk by the Spirit in the new life in Christ. Romans chapter... Oh, sorry, that's off. I slipped headings, didn't I? So that's the next heading. Now the last heading. Through Christ's blood, we have a change of master. I've been hinting at this all the way through, haven't I? We have been transferred. Again, one of my favourite verses, Colossians chapter 1. We have been... Again... I'd rather read it than guess it. Colossians chapter 1, 13 and 14. Where he says, He has delivered us. There's a liberating movement. There's a redemptive word, if you like. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. It's a reign to which freedom is, is under a reign of Christ. What matters most to you, your reputation and your word or Christ's word? You've got a choice every moment of your life. Is it going to come from you or is it going to come from Christ? We've been transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. What's it like there, you might ask? You can ask the person, what's it like being a Christian? Well, here's what it's like. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Come inside this reign, that's what it's like. So through faith we have crucified our flesh with its affections and lusts. Oh, sorry, sorry, sin. I'm, I'm jumping again, aren't I? I beg your pardon. Uh, we've transferred to Christ's kingdom. Now, here's three headings again. Our old humanity is no longer in charge. Then a bit down, sin is no longer in charge. Then another one, desire is no longer in charge. Then another one, the world is not in charge. And then the death is not in charge. Are those things important? Boy, are they important. Uh, our old humanity is not in charge. And again, uh, this would be the time to begin a talk about Romans 6, not to end a talk with. So I'm not going to insult it by going through it. 
but it's one of those marvellous passages where it says we've been crucified with Christ. Christ so loves us and takes us with him that when he dies to sin, he says we've died to sin in him. What does that actually mean? It means that God joins us to Christ's death and resurrection so our body of sin is disabled. Roman, you just need to see that verse even if we can uh, only make a promise to come back to it later on. But Romans 6.6 6 is a marvellous verse where it says, we know that our old self, that's the, that's the mess we're trying to get rid of, right? Our old self was crucified with him. So that, here's God's purpose, here's what it's all about, that the body of sin, well that's the whole mess that I am, you see, the body of sin, the whole entail of sin, might be brought to nothing, disabled, hamstrung, if you're talking about a horse, can't, you're not usable anymore. Is that how your sins are? If you get your eyes on Christ, yeah, that's how your sins are. Get your eyes on yourself, looks like a big problem. See, it depends on, God's, God's got a purpose and we need to be living by faith, not by sight. And here's a faith statement. Notice this passage, and I heard a talk of about 30 minutes in which this was the one point in it, that this is not about our behaviour, not that the sin, that the, what is the body of sin might be disabled, is not talking about what you now have to do. It's talking about what you have to believe. It's talking about what God did on the cross when you were crucified with. That's all he's talking about. He talks about what you do later on and says, therefore we ought not to, do you see? He, the first command comes in verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin. And the command is again to believe, not to do. Here's the, the first command in this whole chapter is, is in this passage is you must consider it this way. Isn't that interesting? So this cleansing, this being under a new master is no, no small thing. Our whole humanity has been brought to an end. Sin is no longer in charge, 15 to 23. What then, are we to sin? Because he is talking about behaviour now. Because we're not under the law? By no means. Don't you know that if you present your members to anyone, your slaves are the same, same as John 8, isn't it? Slaves of who you give way to. But... Oh, poor me, I'm not a very good Christian. Isn't that the next response? Where does Paul go? But thanks be to God. Dismal about yourself? Where do you look? Deeper within yourself? No. Look up. Thanks be to God that you who once used to be slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to that standard of teaching to which you were entrusted. The word committed here means entrusted. God says, I believe in my gospel. I believe that when this person trusts in Jesus Christ, they're going to be different. And you have become obedient, not to the law here, he says you've become obedient to the standard of teaching to which you were entrusted. What were you entrusted to? To Christ's cross, his blood and his resurrection. That's what you're entrusted to. Everything's different. And having been set free from sin, you've become slaves of righteousness. Is that what it's like every day? No, John 1 tells us we're not, not sinners. But where do we go? We live by the blood of Christ. We don't live by a performance. Of course we've got to make amendments to our life. 
But we don't do it from below. We do it from above. So sin is no longer in charge. Desire is no longer in charge. Galatians 2.20 is a passive. You know, we've been crucified with Christ. That's happened to us. That's what I mean by passive. We've been crucified with Christ. But then there's an active verb in Galatians 5.25. Through faith we have crucified. We, we. That's what I did when I became a Christian. We have crucified our flesh with its affections and lusts. It's an active verb. A reference to Christ's cross in which we have shared. There's something dynamic about saying you trust in Jesus Christ. Because when you do that, what you are believing in is so dynamic as to make a change in who you are. You tell me you believe in Christ and I feel sure about you. You show me one little indication you're trusting yourself. I wouldn't have any time of day for trusting you. Do you see that? Our trustworthiness is 100% dependent on where we're looking. And that comes right down to the wire in regard to how I behave for the rest of this day. You see, it's really practical, isn't it? Having been set free from sin, we've become slaves of righteousness. Wow, if you haven't got some problems about that, uh, you're better than I am. Uh, there's all sorts of questions that leaves us with, doesn't it? The world's not in charge. We've been crucified to it. Well, quite frankly, the world doesn't want us. What about the other side of it? Do you want the world? Or has it been crucified to you? What? I mean, you look at the world and you say, what can it really give me? Do you see? It's a very practical thing. It's not some airy-fairy spiritual thing. It's very practical. The world's been crucified to you. You've been crucified to the world. It's got no use for you, what you're about. Not while it's trying to be the world, but we've got plenty for the world. But uh, we know that that's not where our life comes from. And then, of course, the death is not in charge either. The Lord's delivered us. Because sin is condemned in the flesh of Christ, we are freed to walk by the Spirit with its new life in Christ. Well, here we are. There is no cross where Jesus dies. If there is no cross where Jesus dies, freedom dies. In a relentlessness of guilt, a quagmire of pollution, and a collision of rival powers. But freedom lives and thrives because God's people, for God's people, because it's pleased him to unite us to his son, who is crucified and who's been raised, in whom freedom is granted as a gift. Well, let's just treasure this freedom and keep looking upwards. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you that you have not left us to ourselves, even down to the wire of the practical things where we get miserable about how poor we've followed you over the years. And you say, well, where are you looking, Grant? Where are you looking? Upwards or at yourself? Oh, Father, may we be happy all our lives to walk as children who have been crucified with Christ and who now walk with him in newness of life. And we ask this not simply because it would be great, because it would make us feel good, but we ask it, Father, for it would be to your glory. And we ask it because we believe it will be useful for those we are sent to in this world. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.